Well, Romans chapter eight, if you got your Bible with you this weekend, I hope that you brought it, or if you got your Romans journal, it's page 50. Uh, there's a place in there for you to take some notes. Um, if you have your Bibles on one of those on this Memorial Day weekend, uh, let me just first say that on this weekend, we do want to recognize not only those men and women who have fallen in service protecting our nation, but also those of you who have offered your lives to serve our country in this capacity. And we know that your sacrifices defend the freedoms that we enjoy um, each day, even today, freedoms uh, that we don't ever, ever want to take for granted, including our ability to gather um, on weekends like this one and churches like this one without fear of reprisal. Uh, these are very precious freedoms to us that are promised to us, yes, in our constitution, but defended by you at great cost. So we honor both those who have fallen and those who continue to serve today, and we salute you. Uh, in fact, at all of our locations, if you have served or if you are serving in, um, in one of our armed forces, would you do us the honor of just standing where you are at one of our campus locations? Would you stand there and some of, would you put your hands together and show your gratefulness and appreciation? of these brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters that serve us so faithfully. All right, Romans chapter eight, which many people regard to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. John Piper says, the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is the book of Romans. The greatest chapter in that letter is Romans chapter eight. And I would add the greatest verse in chapter eight is verse one. If you were writing the soundtrack for the book of Romans, I think when you rounded the corner into chapter eight, you'd probably start playing the Rocky soundtrack. Paul has just finished now seven chapters of exploring the basics of the gospel. And now he transitions to how it should transform your entire outlook on life. Paul is going to begin asking a series of questions, so to speak, that sound like, and these are my words, not his, but this is basically what he's saying. If the gospel is true, well, how does that change how you see your life? That is a question that I would love to start pressing in on you really from now until the end of the year. Um, if the gospel is true, if the promises of the gospel are true, how does that change how you see yourself? How does that change how you see your problems, how you see the world? It's easy for us to believe the gospel in like, a, you know, kind of out here in a doctrinal sense. It's a creed that we sign off on, but never actually connect it, practically speaking, to how you see your day-to-day -day life. In chapters 9 and 10, Paul is really going to press into the implications of the gospel for what we do with our lives. The implications of the gospel for mission. If the gospel's true, he's going to ask, how could we not be telling our friends about it? I mean, think about it. How could you claim to love somebody, to care about them, to be their friend and not have told them about this message? If the gospel is true, he's going to press on us. How can we not devote ourselves to seeing it spread into every country on earth? Now, by the way, there's a very practical step for you regarding that this weekend at one of your campuses. You probably heard um, about these short-term trips. That is something that we do here a lot at the Summit Church. It's very important in kind of us understanding our role in the world. Uh, we know that God has not called every single one of us to go and live on one of those church plants overseas, but he's called all of us to be a part of the process. And the way that you can get connected to the process is by going and spending some time over there and seeing firsthand what God is doing. You're an incredible encouragement to the team. It's a life shaping vision for you. Um, in fact, if you're a, a family, I, I would challenge you 
what we've done with my family. Um, why not take some of your vacation time and just say, uh, we're going to go and we're going to experience this together because we want to see firsthand what God is doing in the world. Uh, that's just an implication of the gospel being true. Um, that's what Paul is going to press in on that. How could you believe the gospel is true and not be, be into that? That's all coming in chapters 9 and 10. But today, this weekend, we're going to start in chapter 8 where Paul discusses how the gospel transforms how we see ourselves. We're actually gonna spend three or four weeks here. So uh, this will be the first of those. One of the key themes in this chapter is freedom. Freedom, the gospel Paul explains sets us free. Most religious people, you see, you probably know this from experience, most religious people don't feel free because most religious people are caught in two traps. I'm gonna call them the performance trap and the pretending trap. The performance trap is thinking that you gotta maintain a certain standard for God to accept you or bless you. And you think if I fail to meet that standard, then God will punish me. He'll withhold blessing from me. He'll make bad things happen to my life. Maybe even send you to hell. So you're always wondering, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? And if something unfortunate happens to you, well, then you start wondering, is God paying me back for something? What did I do? This kind of life leads to constant anxiety. It leads to eventual exhaustion. Closely related to the performance trap is what we'll call the pretending trap. That's where you're always trying to act on the outside like you got everything together, even when you don't really feel like it on the inside. Listen, I will say this, as now a pastor for 17 years, church people are the absolute worst at this or best at this, depending on how you want to look at it. You see some perfect little family coming in on the weekend, Sunday morning, they're all bows and Bibles and smiles and husband sticks out his hand and says, bless you, brother. And I got a little, you know, as he smiles at you, you see this gleam in his teeth and a faint glow coming from behind his head. And, and the kids are all standing there politely in their little matching outfits and their lavender colored Bibles. And it just, everything looks so perfect. Y'all listen, I know from personal experience that there's a really good chance that on the way to the church uh, in the car that his wife and he were totally screaming at each other. And now they don't, don't even want to talk to each other. And as they pulled into the parking lot, he was leaning back in the back seat trying to swing in, uh, one of the kids in there. And it's just not like it looks like on the outside. Or sometimes you see somebody at church and you're like, how you doing? How you doing? And they'll be like, amazing. I'm just so blessed, too blessed to be stressed. But man, you look at their Facebook page and they don't look too blessed to be stressed. They look plenty stressed. In fact, it looks like their life is on fire. Um, and so this pretending trap where we're always trying to maintain righteousness and happiness on the outside while keeping these sinful impulses under control. Joby Martin, a friend of mine, describes this kind of religious life like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. If you've ever tried to do that, you know, you gotta, gotta really concentrate because the beach ball is always trying to wriggle out and pop up and that's kind of your life. It's like you're always trying to hold these things down and then every once in a while it just pops up and shoots several feet into the air and it's really embarrassing and you gotta get a hold of it and shove it back down under the water so that people can't see the struggle that's going on down there. The gospel, Paul explains in Romans 8, sets you free from both of those traps, uh, both of those traps. The key is freedom. You know that scene in Braveheart, that epic scene where, you know, William Wallace, uh, where, where Mel Gibson is like, freedom, you know, at the end there. Um, that's kind of what you need to think. I, I asked them if I could paint my face blue for this sermon, and they said no. But um, I want you to have that image um, because this is, is, is Paul's cry of freedom. All right, so let's dive in. Chapter 8, verse 1. I, no, chapter 8, verse 1, excuse me. Therefore, therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Has there ever been a more powerful therefore in the entire history of the English language or any language? This is Paul's answer to his dilemma that he put out in chapter seven. 
If you remember throughout chapter seven, Paul has lamented about how much he struggles with sin. In fact, he ends chapter seven by saying, the good that I wanna do, I can't make myself do. And the evil that I hate, well, that's what I end up doing. And then he kind of, he kind of throws up his hands and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he answers this question right at the end of that chapter. He says, thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now beginning this chapter, Paul asks, well, since I continue to struggle so much with sin, how much condemnation, how much punishment can I expect to experience? Because I mean, I've tried to be honest, my life is still a struggle with all this sin. Paul's answer, there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, of course, is a legal term. It means that there is a charge that is being held against you. It means that you owe a debt or a payment. For those in Christ, that debt no longer exists because, Paul says, that debt has been paid in full. Charles Spurgeon used to say that for those in Christ, it would be unjust for God to ever punish you for sin. He could never punish you for sin because that would be requiring two payments for the same sin, right? I mean, if, if, if our electric bill at my household is super high one month because I keep the air on 55 degrees, that may or may not be accurate. But if it's super high one month because of that, and my wife pays it in full, but then the electric company contacts me and says, hey, we expect you also to pay because you're the one, you're the fool that sets it on 55. And so uh, because you're the one that's doing it, we want you to pay also. Well, I would say well, that's not fair. That's not fair. She paid that bill in full. And so you have no more claim on me. Paul says, if I'm in Christ, God literally cannot condemn me. He cannot condemn me for my sin because Jesus was fully condemned for me. For God to hold me accountable for even an ounce of my sin would be to require two payments for the same debt. This declaration of no condemnation applies to both your past and your future sins. You see, many Christians get that Jesus paid the penalty for their past sins. It's like he wiped the slate clean on those, so to speak. But they think, you know, if you commit future sins, well, well, then you might get recondemned for those. Paul says, not if you are in Christ. Look, let me ask you a simple logical question, right? When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins had you committed yet? Not a single one of them, right? And so he paid for them all in advance before you'd ever committed a sin, he had already paid for all of them. In fact, when Paul wrote these words 2000 years ago, there is no condemnation, right? He is speaking what, you know, 65 AD, something like that. When he said that, had you committed any of the sins? No, and he's already declared that there's no condemnation that exists for that because Jesus had already atoned for your sins even before you were even born. Jesus' death wiped out not only the presence of existing condemnation, he wiped out the possibility of future condemnation. And that means there is literally nothing that you could do right now that would make God love and accept you any more than he does and nothing you could do that would make him love you any less. You are in Christ, which means there is nothing that could impede or endanger God's love and his acceptance of you. You see, a lot of Christians think God loves you more, the more that you become like Christ, the better Christian you are. I love hearing the words of a guy named Rankin Wilborn who says it this way, God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And that's always 100% because now he loves you like Jesus. That means, that means that he is just as pleased with you on your very worst day as he was with Jesus when Jesus had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Now, can you imagine the father's joy when Jesus finally finishes that sermon and the father just beaming with, with happiness and pride and acceptance? That is the love and acceptance that God has for you because you and I are in Christ. 
You need to let that sink in for a minute because when you do, that will free you from the performance trap. I don't ever have to be unsure of God's love for me. In all my mess, in all my Romans 7 struggles, I've got the unconditional love and I've got the absolute acceptance of the Father. Let's see, watch this. That then frees me from the pretending trap because I don't have to pretend anymore that I'm something that I'm not in front of you. There is literally nothing about me that could be revealed that Jesus has not already seen and that his blood has not already covered. That means you point out something about my life that is inconsistent or embarrassing. And I say, yep, God saw that too. And he set his love on me anyway. And he's promised to change that in me. What are you embarrassed of right now? What is there in your life that you would be mortified if somebody found out about it? What secret is there that you want something from your past or even a struggle in your present that you're like, I hope nobody ever knows about that. God has already seen it and God has already declared no condemnation. Jesus paid that for that in full and I receive you. Uh, there's an old hymn. We haven't come up with a modern tune for it. I hope, I hope um, uh, Hank, that we will do this someday. Put a tune to this one. Long may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Long may the accuser roar. Maybe me, even my own conscience of sin that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none, right? Freedom, that's Paul yelling, freedom. What a verse, amen? Amen, verse two. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Key word here in this verse is the word because, because it connects it to the previous verse. Here's how I know I'm under no condemnation. Pay attention. The reason I know that I'm under no condemnation is because I see a law in me that is leading me away from sin and death. Now, real quick, don't let the word law there um, uh, throw you because this is not law in the Old Testament Mosaic law sense. You need to read that word law in this verse. Read that like the word principle. There is a new principle at work in me. We used to operate according to the old principle that if we kept the law good enough, we would be accepted. The problem we discovered was that the law couldn't change our hearts. And if anything, the law just made us more fearful and more sinful. But now Paul says there's a new principle. There is a new law that is at work in my heart and life. And that new law, new principle is the life-giving power of the spirit. The Mosaic law said, only if you're good enough, only if you do enough, only then will you be accepted. God now says, nope, I'll produce righteousness behavior. I'll produce righteous behavior in you through the power of my spirit. The spirit is the other big theme of this chapter. Again, don't miss a connection between those first two verses. How do I know that there is no condemnation for me? It is because I see the spirit of God at work in me. Listen, friends, the necessary complement to forgiveness of sin is a release from the power of sin. It's like the other side of the salvation coin. If heads is freedom from the penalty of sin, then tails is freedom from the, from the power of sin. If you are forgiven, you will be changed. If Jesus' death has released you from the penalty of sin so that there's no condemnation, then Jesus' spirit, his resurrection life, starts to release you from the power of sin. And the two are always gonna go together. This was illustrated in the life of Jesus through the miracles where he would heal people. And sometimes in those miracles, he would say something honestly kind of strange. Somebody would be brought to him that was lame. They couldn't walk. And Jesus would say to them, your sins are forgiven. Now rise, take up your bed and walk. 
And it's a little bit of an odd coupling because they hadn't mentioned anything about their sins. Why does Jesus bring up their sins? It's because these miracles are illustrating salvation. When Jesus forgives your sins, then you will begin to rise up and walk spiritually. And if that is not happening in you, it is doubtful that he has forgiven you either. So that is my question for you. It is awesome that your sins have been forgiven, but the question is, are you walking? I have bemoaned to you before the question we always use to determine if somebody's saved. The question we always ask, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that God would let you into heaven? Now, listen, that's a great question. It's a great question and you should have the right answer for it. The right answer for it is if you were to die tonight and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer is because Jesus paid my sin debt in full and because he said there's no condemnation, therefore there is no reason not to accept me in heaven because Jesus paid it all, all right? So it's an important question, but equally important with that question is this other question. And that is not if you died tonight, but if you get up tomorrow, is your life gonna be different because the spirit of Jesus is, in, because the spirit of Jesus is inside you? Are you up walking? Right? You prayed and asked Jesus to come into your heart and pay for your sins. That's great. But did you let him come in and take over your heart? Right? He said your sins are forgiven, but did you rise, take up your bed and walk? Here's another example from the life of Jesus. It comes from John chapter 8. A woman is brought to Jesus who is caught in the very act of adultery, it says. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Neither do I condemn you. But then he also says to her, now go and sin no more. In other words right? I forgive your sin. Now start walking again. Forgiveness is always accompanied by change. And I've told you before that the order that Jesus puts those two phrases in is important also. Neither do I condemn you comes before go and sin no more. I've told you it's significant because most of us would want to reverse those. We would say something like, if you go and sin no more, then I will consider not condemning you. So why did Jesus put him in that order? Why did Jesus put neither do I condemn you before he said, go and sin no more. Well, let me just ask you this. Why do you think this woman was an adulterer? I, I, I know we're not given a lot of detail about her life, of course, and there's no way that I can really know, but maybe, maybe if human nature is the same back then as it is today, maybe this woman felt starved for love. Maybe she'd grown up at a home where her father barely paid attention to her. Maybe she felt unappreciated in her marriage and by her husband and this guy made her feel special and, and this guy made her feel attractive or maybe, maybe she felt pressured into this. Maybe this guy threatened her. Maybe he was just using her. Whatever it is for Jesus to tell this woman to just go and cut it out wouldn't fix the problem. The attracting power of sin was just too strong. Jesus had to assure her of a love and acceptance that was greater than whatever was drawing her toward the arms of that man. That's why he assured her of his acceptance of her before he gave her the command to change because the command to change would never be able to take root in her until she had felt the strength of his acceptance. He basically says to her, what your soul is craving for is not in him. What you're looking for has been in me. The arms you've been looking for in romance have actually been my arms. We find the power to change only in the assurance of acceptance. You see, the gospel message is not stop sinning. That would be an impossible message. The gospel message is behold the love and the acceptance of your God, and then you'll have the power to stop sinning. That's why we always say around here, we always say it this way, God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin. 
It's not the reward for us having liberated ourselves. God's acceptance, this is, most religions are gonna say this, God's acceptance, his entry is allowing you to go to heaven is gonna be the reward for having liberated yourself from temptation and sin. But the gospel says, no, God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for us having liberated ourselves. That's why God always puts, neither do I condemn you before he says, go and sin no more. It's why he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now you can get up and walk. When in the hymns we sing, this is how he breaks the power of canceled sin. You ever think about that phrase? Canceled sin means it's forgiven, but he's got to break its power. And the way that he breaks its power is through the assurance of acceptance. That is freedom. So in verses one and two, Paul articulates the two kinds of freedom from sin that come from salvation. He says, by Jesus's death, he's freed us from the penalty of sin, but now through his spirit, he has released you from the power of sin. These two always go together. Now, verses three and four, Paul further unpacks the unity between these two kinds of freedom. He says, he says what the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the thou shalt not law, what it could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, in other words, the law was making all these commands to us about being righteous that we just couldn't obey. What it could not do, God did. How did God do it? He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, Jesus released us from the law by being born in our flesh and then living the life we were supposed to live which is a life of perfect obedience to the laws of God and then dying a death as a sin offering, right? A sin offering for those of us who had not lived that way. And that offering, that sacrifice freed us from the penalty of sin. And that made way for the spirit to come into us and to begin fulfilling the law's requirement in us. What was the law's requirement? The law's requirement was that we do righteous. Jesus summarized it as loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. He said that when the spirit comes in you, he'll actually start to produce those things in you. Because remember what I've told you, God is not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. He's after an obedience that grows out of desire, an obedience where you seek God, not because you have to, not because you're told to, not because you're threatened with hell if you don't, an obedience where you seek God because you crave God an obedience where you do righteousness because you love righteousness. Paul says that desire was not able to be produced by the law. The law could tell you all day long what you should do, but it couldn't produce the desires to do it. Those desires could only be produced in you by the life-giving power of the spirit. What the law could never do, the spirit does in the gospel. So how practically does this change get produced in us? Well, Paul says it happens when we walk not according to the flesh, it's when we walk according to the spirit. And they say, what does that mean? All kinds of Christians have different ideas about what it means to walk according to the Spirit. It's a great question. Let's just keep reading. We'll let Paul answer his own question. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Walking according to the Spirit is accomplished, in other words, by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say setting your mind on the Spirit. It says setting your minds on the things of the Spirit. The reason I draw that distinction is because a lot of Christians are obsessed by the spirit. And when you get really spiritual, you think that you relate to him all the time and you're always hearing his voice. And he's like, it's like a scar and you're like the Harry Potter scar, which always tingling when something bad is about to happen. And so they're thinking all the time, like, Ooh, I just had the hair in the back of my neck stand up. I'm one of the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. All right, I think I've told you about the single guy who, you know, who says to me like, well, the spirit of God 
pastor just really told me to ask this girl out. I'm like, well, tell me about that. Right, and be careful when you're telling me about it. And he's like, yeah, well, I just, you know, it's like I was driving down the road and I was thinking about this girl named Lauren. I was just thinking about her. And, uh, and all of a sudden I look at this billboard and man, the background color of that, of that billboard was the same color as her eyes. And I noticed that the last two digits of the phone number that this law firm was telling me to call was, was the same as her age. And just then Lauren Daigle's music comes on the radio and it's the song, This Girl. And I just knew Jehovah Jireh, he is speaking to me and telling me to ask her out. And I'm like, bro, I'm not totally sure that may not be the Holy Spirit. It sounds to me like the preamble to a restraining order. If you're really going to ask me and I'm going to be honest with you, but I just wouldn't go with that. He's not saying that he's not saying that you got to focus all the time on the spirit. He's saying you're focusing on the things of the spirit. He's not a force. He's a person. And setting your mind on the things of the spirit means thinking about the things that the spirit thinks about. It means you love what the spirit loves. It means you seek the things that the spirit seeks. Because that's what you do when you're in fellowship with somebody, right? Fellowship kind of means friendship. When you're good friends with somebody, you like to get together and talk about what you both love. If you both love hockey, you get together and you talk about hockey. If you both love eating steak, you get together and you eat a steak, right? That's what friendship is. So when you're in fellowship with the spirit, then you are talking about and thinking about and dwelling on and living out the things that the spirit loves, all right? What is it that the spirit loves? Well, the spirit loves God's glory. The spirit loves truth. The spirit loves beauty. God's beauty loves justice and righteousness. The spirit loves God's church. He loves people. You know, he, uh, Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are, 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 are honest and, and true and lovely and of good report and, and just think on those things. These are the things the spirit loves. The spirit loves the fame of Jesus and the spread of his message. People being saved, delivered and empowered. Here's the key. As you dwell on those things, the spirit and you are in fellowship. And here's the thing, where the spirit is, so is his power. And when his power is there, your life will begin to bear fruit spiritually. Here is what people do not get. The fruits of the spirit are simply, listen, the results of the spirit's presence. The fruits of the spirit are simply the result of the spirit being in the room. And wherever he is, they simply start showing up. And the spirit is present in you insofar as you are dwelling on the things that delight the spirit. So when you think on, participate in something that grieves the spirit, well, then that makes your heart inhospitable for him. And as his presence fades from your life, so do his fruits. Here's a question. What if the greatest danger of sin was not whatever bad effect it has on you or somebody else? What if the greatest damage of sin was that it cuts you off from the spirit of God. I ask that because Christians always evaluate sin, it seems like, by how bad the effects are. And they'll say, well, that's, I mean, this is a little sin, it's not that bad. It's a little thing, it's not going to do any real damage. But what if the worst effects of sin was that it grieves the Holy Spirit and cuts you off from fellowship with him? The fruits of the spirit are produced by fellowship with the spirit and you are in fellowship with him insofar as you think on and dwell on the things that delight him. Paul continues, now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit, he says, well, see, that's life and peace. That means fruits of the spirit. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace in you. Where the spirit goes, so do his fruits of life and peace. What drives him out? The mindset of the flesh. You say, well, what's the mindset of the flesh? In verse seven, Paul is gonna summarize it as hostility to God. Okay, he's like, well, okay, well, good. I'm not hostile to God, so I don't have the mindset of the flesh. Well, hang on. 
Hostility to God in Romans would be defined according to the five selves. I don't think I've given you this before. The five selves, okay? Self-will, right? I wanna do what I wanna do. I may, you know, give lip service to God. I may tip my hat to him. I may try to be a good person. I may let him be an influence. But ultimately at the end of the day, I, I wanna do, I wanna make the decisions. I, I'm okay with God being a real influence on me, but I wanna make the decision, self-will. Here's the second characteristic, self-glory. I really wanna be the point. I want everybody talking about me, I want them thinking about me, I want them looking at me. I'm not concerned about how they're looking at God, I'm worried about how they're thinking about me. Um, Self-gratification means I will like my desires fulfilled, even if it means that I've got to transgress the will of God to get them fulfilled. Then there is self-righteousness. I think I'm going to distinguish myself above others and I'm gonna earn my place, all right? Self-righteousness, I'm going to show that I'm good enough. And then the last one, self-sufficiency, I'm good enough. I'm gonna get good enough that I can, I can overcome and I can do this even apart from the power of God. I just think about what I can accomplish. Sin, I've told you before, is the big I problem. The way I teach my kids, how you spell sin, S-I-N, what's the middle letter? I, That's, that defines everything you need to know about sin right there. It's that I, my will, my glory, my gratification, I'm good enough, I can accomplish things, self, self, so fellowshipping with the spirit means putting God in each of those places where previously you had self. So instead of self-will, you say, well, not my will, but yours be done. Whether I'm talking about what job I take or where I live or what I do with my money or whom I date, it's not my will, but yours. Self-glory means it's not about me. It's not to us, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory. Self-gratification means you say, hey, look, my bread, my satisfaction is to do, to do the will of the Father. Self-righteousness is where you say, hey, I know that all my righteousness is as a filthy rag and that my righteousness is complete in you because you have become my righteousness and you are my goodness, Christ, my righteousness. Self-sufficiency is where you say, I can't, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That, oh, those are the things of the Spirit, as you think like that, the Spirit surges in you. Listen, at any given point, whether you got a Bible in your hand and a smile on your face and a worship song in your mouth, at any given point, there's either a self-focus in your heart or there's a God focus. If it's a self-focus, you're grieving the Spirit of God. It means when I'm standing in church and I'm singing worship songs, but I'm thinking more about what I want to accomplish or I'm thinking about what people are thinking about me, I'm grieving the Spirit and driving him away and with him go the fruits of spiritual life and peace. Or you're thinking like he thinks and fellowship with him and the result of that is the spirit is present and he's producing the fruits of the spirit in you. Again, what if the most devastating effects of your sin, what if the most devastating effect was not any damage it caused to you or somebody else? What if the most devastating effect of your sin was simply that it grieved the spirit of God and it made him pull away and with him goes life and peace. Verse seven, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. You see, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is Paul recapping what he's unpacked in chapter seven. He's like, there's a flesh, there's a sinful nature part of you that's totally against God. It's totally for you. Saying when he says in verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He doesn't mean by that, that a person without Jesus can't ever think a good thought or perform a noble action. It just means at the core of who they are, they're more loyal to themselves than they are to God. And that makes them displeasing to God, no matter how good and kind they are in every other part of their life. I, we've talked about this before and I've used a number of examples to illustrate it. Here's one more. Imagine you got a guy in a rebel army, a rebel army who looks after his comrades. He's really good to his fellow soldiers. He keeps his uniform clean and pressed. 
He's brave. He's got a great work ethic. He's always truthful with his superiors. He's always punctual. He always stays later to, to make sure the job gets done. Every single one of those are good actions, right? But they're all done in the context of hostility to the rightful ruler. You would never expect that king, that ruler to hear about that rebel's conscientiousness or his punctuality or his kindness to his fellow rebels and be pleased by his conduct. Because even though those were good actions, they were done in the context of hostility to God. That's what Paul is saying. You, however, he says, verse nine, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now that word live, by the way, in Greek, uh, that word live, spirit of God lives in you, that means permanent. It means permanent resident, not like he just comes an occasional visitor, um, which addresses a question that a lot of Christians have about when you get the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some Christian traditions that teach that you get the Holy Spirit after you're saved in some kind of um, uh, second blessing, the baptism of the Spirit, um, a second experience after you become a Christian, later you get the Holy Spirit. By the way, I would bet that a number of you grew up in traditions like that. I've had people say to me before, they're like, hey, you're a great preacher and you're, you're obviously saved, but have you received the Holy Spirit yet? I, I always actually open my Bible to Romans 8 and I'm like, well, what does verse 9 say? If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. It means if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not saved. Which means that when you put your faith in Christ, you receive the spirit. That is the baptism of the spirit. That's how Paul describes it. First Corinthians 12, look at it. He's talking about salvation here. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and that's your salvation. You say, all right, well, wait a minute. What about in the book of Acts? I've seen that there were groups of disciples that received the Holy Spirit later. Um, yeah, it's a great question. What you're having in, in Acts is you're seeing God fulfill his promise and he's trying to convince the Jews that he's keeping his word to take the gospel to different people groups. And so every time it goes to a different, like a new people group, God signifies it through some miraculous display. I've heard it described like this. Uh, when New York City got water um, back in the what, 1910, 1920, something like that, and the running water first came in there, every time it would go into one of the new boroughs in New York City, the, um, uh, the mayor would go out and there'd be a big ceremony and he'd cut the ribbon and it'd be a big you know, hoopla about it. And, but it wasn't like he did it for every house thereafter, he just did it for each new borough. So in Acts, what you have is different groups of people that are being bestowed the Holy Spirit on them and there's a ceremony, but that's not indicative of what happens to every person from that point on. Paul says, the normal thing is when you put faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you got the Holy Spirit. And Paul would say that the amount of spiritual power from that point on that you are experiencing has nothing to do anymore with how much of the Holy Spirit you have. The question from that point on is how much of you, how much of your heart he has. Are you in fellowship with him? Are you dwelling on, are you thinking on and participating in the things that please him? How much of what you're doing grieves him? Right, Paul ends the, the section. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead lives in you, well, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. I see three big takeaways from those final verses. Number one, the Christian life is not gradual self-improvement. The Christian life is fellowship with the Spirit. And listen, if some of you would embrace that, that would be a game changer. 
because you're probably used to evaluating sin based on how bad the effects are. And you're trying to grow yourself spiritually. Stop it, right? The way that you grow spiritually is simply by welcoming the Holy Spirit into your life and wherever he comes, he's gonna bring his fruits with him. And it means when you grieve him and drive out his spirit, it means his fruits are gonna go away. And that's why I keep pressing into you The real damage of sin is not the effects. The real damage of sin is that it grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit goes, so do his fruits of life and peace. If you really understood that, it would, watch this, it would start to make small areas of compromise in your life every bit as devastating as big ones. Because what makes a sin devastating is not the action. What makes a sin devastating to you is it drives out the Spirit of God. And that means even small areas of rebellion. Small areas of compromise grieve the Holy Spirit and they cut you off from life and peace. Here's the second implication. Coming to Christ is not a return to religion. Coming to Christ is a surrender to a person. I often hear people say, well, well, I'm trying to get back with God. I have these conversations all the time. I'm trying to get back with God. People see me in Starbucks, run to me in a restaurant store. Hey, you know, yeah, yeah, I've come to your church a few times. I'm trying to get back with God. I'm trying to get back into church. What they mean What they mean is they want to get involved in some kind of religious self-improvement. I want to be a better person. I want to pay a little bit more attention to God. But listen, listen, Christianity, plain and simple, is surrender to a person. All of you, all of you surrenders to all of him. The nature of surrender is that it's total. Otherwise, if surrender's not total, you're just looking at him like a suggestion giver. You know, when I took driver's ed, I was thinking about this the other day because my daughters are about this age where they're getting into this. And driver's ed, I had, I don't, I think they still do it, but the car that I took driver's ed in had the guy sitting next to me had this big old brake. That's all he had. Do y'all have this, the big old brake coming out? And it meant that he could stop that car anytime he wanted. And in fact, he did it like after we'd been out about five minutes just to show me that he had it. So I wanted to turn and he just like slammed that brake and like, you know, slam in there. And what he was showing me was, you think you're in control of this car and I'm letting you drive, but I can stop this car anytime I want to. I could vote, I'm the driver, I could vote about where we should go, but ultimately he had the veto power. He had not surrendered the car to me. To surrender means I take my hands off of it and it belongs to you, right? And by the way, it's probably a good choice on his part because I had a lot of things I needed to learn. When you come to Christ, you didn't come, you basically turn over the brake. And you're like, because I would describe probably some of our spiritual lives that way. Is it Jesus is speaking to you? And you're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's go over here. That sounds awesome. Oh, I'll do that. But every once in a while, you're like, nope. You push that brake in and the car comes to a halt because you've never actually surrendered it to him. You've kept that brake right in place. To be surrendered to Jesus means you take the brake away. You cut the brake out. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in mere Christianity. This is awesome. Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want a certain amount of your time, a certain amount of your talents or money. I don't want a certain amount of your work. I want you, all of you. I've not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman. Good news. I've not come to frustrate that. I've come to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune or a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Rip the brake out of the thing. He handed it over to me. The whole outfit, all your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams, give it all to me. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. That's fellowship with the spirit. And it begins in total surrender. Here's a question. Have you done that? Stop trying to be religious. Stop trying to strike a bargain with God. There's only one deal, only one deal that Jesus will ever make. 
And that is he will give you his righteousness and his resurrection power in response to your total surrender. There's no other negotiation that he'll enter into. Here's number three, third implication. I've got hope even when I feel dead. I got hope even when I feel dead. Like Paul, even though I'm still frustrated at my own personal deficiencies. Remember, this is right after Romans 7. Like Paul, I'm like, hey, man, I'm just frustrated because even after, after all these years of walking with Jesus, I still feel so spiritually immature. Paul says, I know, but in Christ, I know I'm headed to ultimate victory because the spirit of God is at work in me. He is producing righteousness in my heart right now. And one day, one day he's gonna deliver me physically from this body of death. And he's gonna take me into a world without corruption or pain or death. And I can't wait. That's why you can feel Paul screaming throughout this chapter. Right now he says, already I've got the beginnings of this resurrection heart. I see Jesus changing me. And one day, one day I'm gonna have a completed resurrection heart and it's gonna be accompanied by a resurrection body and I'm gonna live in a resurrection world. And that means if I'm struggling with some sin, see, that means that struggle is not the end of my story. No, because the spirit of God is within me. And that means that this struggle, as bad as it is, I know it ends in victory. And that means if my marriage feels dead, it means if your marriage feels dead, that's not the end of your story either because the spirit of God is within you. He is always renewing you. He is always making you mount up with wings on like eagles. And no matter what happens in your marriage, your story ends in resurrection hope. And it means if your life is characterized by some ongoing struggle, depression, anxiety, chronic physical suffering. You've seen the doctors, you've seen the psychologists, you've gone to everybody and it just doesn't seem to be able to get behind you. What this means is that when it's all said and done, that will not be the predominant theme of your life because just as sure as the spirit raised Jesus from the grave, he also will raise your body to beautiful, perfect, everlasting life. And that will be the theme. That will be what characterizes your life in eternity. And all these things, Paul says, the body might be dead. The body might be dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. That's hope. And in that hope, Paul says, is freedom. Is that the life you want? Is that the life you want? It starts with total surrender to the spirit. And it starts with a commitment to grow in fellowship with him. It starts ironically enough, listen, this is the most beautiful part. It starts ironically enough by simply embracing that no condemnation. If you hear from this, go out, get better, and one day you can have these promises. You heard it wrongly. It starts with Romans 8.1, no condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. If you'll receive that, then I'll give you the power to go and sin no more. It's so easy a child can grasp it. It's so easy that the, the most vile, lost sinner can grasp it immediately. But something that so many people stumble over. You ever been to a, a really nice dinner at a restaurant with somebody? And you tried to pick up the check and you knew that you should do it because you had a lot more money than they did. But for whatever reason, they just, their pride, or I don't know what it was, but they just, you knew they couldn't afford it, but their pride would not let them let you do it. And so, so they, they keep, no, 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 I'm gonna pick it up. I'm gonna pick it up. No matter how many times you offered, they just kept saying, no, 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 I insist, insist, it's on me, right? You kind of leave the restaurant. You're like, I know that almost devastated you. And you know, I could have covered it. It would have been a big deal. Well, here's the same thing. If you insist on picking up the bill yourself for your sin, you can do that. If your pride stands in the way of accepting Jesus, just understand what you are agreeing to pay when you reject him. Because this full debt for your sin is gonna come due someday. And it's gonna be yours to pay if you insist. That condemnation will fall on you for eternity. 
And Jesus says, there's no condemnation in Christ. I've already paid it. If you will embrace what I am offering to you in Christ, then you will have not just my death, which releases you from the penalty of sin, you'll be filled with my spirit, which will release you from the power of sin. You can choose that no matter what you bring into this place. You can choose it right now, right here, today, if you want, because it's offered indiscriminately to all who will receive it. Why don't you bow your heads? Bow your heads with me. Romans 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible, begins with the greatest verse. Maybe the greatest words ever spoken in any language. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever received that? It's a gift. And when you receive it, you're also going to get the Spirit of God. And that Spirit's gonna start to make you new. He's gonna take that mess that you've made of your life, that mess you've made of your relationships and your marriage and start to make it new. If you've never received him, you can do it right now just by saying, Lord Jesus, I receive the gift of no condemnation. I believe it and I receive it. Now, Spirit of God, make me new. Spirit of God, come in and change me. Make me into your image. Father, thank you that you take the broken, you take the bruised, you take the spiritually dead. You forgive them, you clean them, and you make them new. It's not about our power, it's about yours. What the law could not do, our God did. Thank you, God, for the gift of power and mercy in the cross. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.